turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 1. I am so thankful for you folks because uh, I am not a creative preacher. I, I, I just don't fit in one of those churches, churches that markets the pastor's sermons because I, I I'm not creative enough to come up with a title um, for this one. I still don't know what to call it. But uh, anyway, it's 2 Samuel 1, and I've got a church that hungers for the Word of God. You don't really care what I call it. Just tell me what it says. And I really appreciate that. I really do. And um, I just want to stop and thank God for it. Let's pray together. Father, I just want to stop and thank you for our people, for the body of Christ that hungers and thirsts for your word. Fathers, we come to sit at your feet. Again, open your word to us. Teach us your truth that we may be conformed to Christ, that we can grow, that we can be transformed into his righteousness, that we can be pleasing to you through his blood and grace. Father, continue to grow us. We feast, we feed now upon your truth. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. As you look at 2 Samuel 1, obviously we've just transitioned from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel. I gave you an overview last week of the entire book of 2 Samuel. Now we're coming back and we're going to hit the chapters uh, little by little. Chapter 1 is that transition from 1 Samuel, where Saul was king, to 2 Samuel, where David is king over God's people. So there's a national change that's occurred. So national change is a change in leadership. And with a change in leadership, everything changes. We've seen that with when you change from President Obama to President Trump. Immediately, whether you like the change or not, changes start to happen. There's a media change. There's people who have a moral change, you begin to see hatred and uh, love come out. There's um, political process change. There's a Twitter change. There's uh, all sorts of changes, good or bad. Every eight years in America, that's the way the world turns for us. It changes, and there could be a health care change, there could be a tax change, good or bad, it, it changes. How do we deal with those kinds of changes? Well, that's what's going on in 2 Samuel 1. They, they went from Saul leading to now David leading, and all of these things began to change. And in the midst of this change, four themes seem to ring out in this, this first chapter. Um, number one, there's there's... This, this understanding that there's things we need to lament about, languish with. There's things that grieve us as a result of the change. There are others who live or die because of the change. And then there's this theme of lying. Lying is prevalent in times of great change as people try to get what they want. They use that. I want you to see these themes. I don't think they're unrelated to what we go through and what we need at all. But we might have skipped over it if we're just reading it as a historical book. But let's understand, this is God's word to us. He's chosen these themes. He wants us to learn and grow from them. Let me read the first ten verses as we think about 
these themes in 2 Samuel 1. Now it came about that after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziglag. On the third day, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David that he fell on the ground and he prostrated himself. Then David said to him, From where do you come? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, How did things go? Please tell me. And he said, Well, the people have fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and behold, Saul was leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me. And I said, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And then he said to me, Please stand beside me and kill me, for agony has seized me, because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him, and I killed him, because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen, and I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. And I stop there and think about what's going on here, what's, what's happening. Obviously, Saul's dead. Saul and Jonathan are dead. And I don't mention the other sons by name, but Jonathan, because he was supposedly next in line to be king. They're dead, and there's this man that coming out of the Amalekite slaughter, verse 1. Not even an Israelite. Not even one that we've, we're really on good terms with. This Amalekite comes running, clothes torn, dust on his head. He's got a message. He falls down before the king. And as he delivers this, the king says, you know, why are you here? How things go? Well, the message is Saul and Jonathan are dead. Well, how do you know? Well, because I killed him. Oh, that's what we're getting into. Now, as you get into that, if you're an astute scholar of this, you will remember, wait, 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 that's not the way I was told the story. So look back at chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. Let's remember how you were told the story. 1 Samuel 31, and let's see, let's just pick it up, verse 3. The battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him. and He was badly wounded by the archers. And then Saul said to the armor-bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it. Otherwise, these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer would not he was greatly afraid so Saul took his sword and he fell on it then his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead so he also fell on his sword and died with him thus Saul died with his three sons three of them there his armor bearer and all of his men on that day together all right different story all together so what I want you to see here because we're not liberal scholars, we, we're looking for the truth. 
Do we have two stories in the Bible that tell different accounts? Well, there's two accounts, obviously, but we only have one truth. We have, only have one story that's right. We have this story in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel that is told by God. He's the narrator. He's telling us the truth, what happened. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, we have a story that gives us the perspective of an Amalekite. And we're, we're being told this is what the Amalekite says. This is his story. We don't have two stories. We have God's story and we have what the Amalekite say, said. Now, when you have those two options, God or the Amalekite, which one do you choose? There's no option. It's God. And by the way, I don't know about you. I've just never met an Amalekite I could trust. And here's one running out of a slaughter coming to David, and basically what we're going to see over and over, he lies. He's not telling the truth. And why is he not telling the truth? The reason he's not telling the truth because he's hoping there's financial gain. He's hoping there's reward. He's hoping really to be set for life. If he comes to the next king and awards him the crown and the armband from the previous king, wow. Hopefully the next king will be so grateful, you know, he just set him up, put him in a nice plush office somewhere and say, this is the guy that was with me first and supports me and honors me. Well, that's probably what the Amalekite had in mind. And he's telling this story about how David died. David, you know, stops and he asks, you know, tell me, uh, you know, you, you get a little hint that David's suspicious, uh, you know, Verse 5, uh, David, so David said to the young man, how do you know this? I mean, this, it's already starting to sound a little fishy. How do you know Saul died? The way you're telling me this story, the, the Amalekites were slaughtered, and yet you're, you're hanging out here, and you're telling me this story. It's, it's not a royal report. And he's not waiting for the royal report. This is news that is leaked. And leaked news might be fake news. And people who get you the news quickly because they have to, they want to leak it out even before the official report comes out, usually they do that because they stand to make a buck. And it's exactly what's happening with the Amalekite. David smells a rat. It's a little bit fishy. How do you know he died? Well, because I killed him. Really? You might need to tell me how that went. And he gives him this story about how, you know, he was, David turned around, you know, the pe people, did you read it? It's like, there's a lot of people around. It says, and behold, verse 6, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. Right? There are people pursuing David closely, and yet Am this Amalekite is the only guy around Saul. Then he says, and so Saul looked around, there was nobody to help him, and he just, lo and behold, by chance, I happened to be there. And so he calls out to me. Of all the people that he could call out, he calls out to me, an Amalekite. Doesn't even know me. He asked me who I am. I'm an Amalekite. Well, I need you to kill me. Okay, king commanded it. Bam, you're dead. Takes the crown, runs back to David and the armband. 
David is sensing the little fishiness here. You remember David's fault with Saul in his first battles. Saul is a 42-year veteran warrior. Saul kills thousands when David steps onto the scene and he you remember the story about Saul? Saul's one of his strategies was anytime he finds a mighty man, what does he do with him? Puts him in to his service. And especially around him, the most mighty men are around him. David was found to be one of those guys, the guy who kills Goliath. I want him. Puts him in that inner circle. And Saul's killing thousands. He starts seeing David kill ten thousands. Those are the kind of people Saul has around him. David knew this firsthand. This Amalekite's telling a story that just doesn't, doesn't match with what he knows of Saul, what he knows of warfare. When the king is in battle, especially this king, who is such a seasoned veteran, and a king who has learned the strategy of having the best men around him, he's got at least an armor bearer. We know that to be the case in the chapter 31. He's got these mighty men around him. And the way you get to be in the secret service of our nation or any nation, you have to take a vow. And that vow is that I will die before I let my king or my president die. And if you come back to us and say, he died but I didn't, what do we do? We kill you. Because you took a vow to die on your sword for our leader. Our leader's too valuable. And so that leader is surrounded with men who are willing to take the sword, willing, willing to take the bullet day in and day out to protect our leader. David's got, I mean, excuse me, Saul has those men around him. He's developed this strategy well. And he has been shot from, you know, somebody lobbed an arrow in. And it's got him, and Saul knows this is a mortal wound. Realizing that, he turns to the guy closest to him, his armor bearer, says, you just need to kill me. I'm, I'm done. And what does the armor bearer say? He's one of these secret service guys. He said, no way. Are you crazy? I've been serving you a long time, but that's the last thing I would do. I'm not killing you. I'll protect you with my life. Whoever's coming, whoever's pursuing, they'll have to come through me. I will protect you. So I'll say, yeah, 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 but I'm dying here. The armor bearer said, who knows? Somebody may come. We may get rescued. I will fight until I die. I am not killing you. I don't know how many times David might, excuse me, Saul might have had to say that. But maybe he, he said, well, the armor bearer, you know, if he won't do it, nobody will. So Saul takes his own sword or gets enough energy to pick up a spear from somewhere, and he kills himself. Now, as soon as his servicemen see that he's dead, and he's really gone. What does the armor bearer do? Well, I can't go back. They'll kill me, because I'll let you die. He kills himself, falls on his sword. And anybody else that's around, okay, Saul's gone, next in line's gone, Jonathan's gone, and they all start killing themselves. That's how the story goes. That Saul and his men have died. David began to understand that's david would have understood that's the way it's going to go this amalekite comes in with where was the amalekite 
probably hiding in the bushes. I don't know. You know, he's hiding. He's watching all of these things happening. You know, he's, he's, he's staying put because there's an Amalekite slaughter going on. You don't just stick your head up and say, hey, Amalekite here to the rescue. So he's probably hiding. He sees all this transpire. And when the coast is clear and by chance nobody's looking, he rushes in, grabs the crown, bracelet, armband, whatever that is, and takes it, runs, and he takes it fast to David. Well, what does David do with all this info? Down in verse 15, 16, David called one of the young men and said, cut him down. So he struck him and he died. And David said to him, your blood is on your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. David knew that this Amalekite was lying. Lying was a capital offense. He was either lying or he was a murderer. He killed the king. Either way, he's done. Instead of a reward, David kills him. He says, cut him down. He's testified that he is a capital offender. Destroy him. Well, think about it. Let's stop and pause for a little application here. What was the Amalekite doing? Lying for personal gain. Do we ever do that? Do we remember that we have a God who is a God of truth? And he wants truth in our most inward parts? Do we sometimes lie to to get ahead? Would we lie on a job application if we thought it would get us a job? That's perhaps the most direct application application here would we lie online to get a date if we needed a date would we lie just to boost our ego would we embellish the truth because we want to be honored we want to be exalted all of those things seem to be things this guy was doing and we need to stop and think about you know are we doing because we have this notion i think that if, if we can lie and get away with it, God will let it slide too. I fooled you, <laughs> that I fooled God. Or do we even think that far into it? Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Strong passage about God's ability to see us. Hebrews 4, verse 13, says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are opened and open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There's nothing hidden from God. And he, he says, you know, I look at your heart. It's like you're cut down the middle and just open. He says, I see your inward parts. Remember back Psalm 139, I formed your inward parts. And I take notice of you. And it brings out the application for us. All things are open, laid bare to the eyes of God with whom we have to do. We, we have to one day give an account. Everything's open and laid bare to the eyes of him 
with whom we have to do. What we desperately need in this time of change, what we desperately need in our land, what we desperately need in our churches is a return to the truth as a standard. To stop lying. Lying is not what, not the tool, the secret ingredient that gets us ahead. We have to do with a God of truth. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That if you, you come to me, you come to the truth, there's, there's no way we're going to pull it over on God. He knows right from wrong. He knows truth from falsehood. We need to, to go to him, run to him, and his ambassadors with the truth. What we need in this land, what our president needs what all of the people around him need is to stop the leaks and let's get back to truth most definitely but the leaks can occur with us if we're willing to lie instead of being committed to truth let's see the the importance of that for the establishing of our own lives in the lives of those in our land second kind of theme that God gives us in 2 Samuel is this theme of languishing. Look at verse 11 and 12. It just kind of hits you. Verse 11, Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so also did the men who were with him. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Catch that. Stop with me a minute. Say, it's, it's like the Amalekites telling this story. It's like, ah, isn't this cool? I, I got the, the, the crown. I got the bracelet. I'm here. Oh, didn't think I'd make it, you know. And David says, wait, we interrupt this program to weep. Before David even gets to killing this guy, it's like something's more important here than justice. Something's more important here than let's getting the truth out. Wait, one thing truth of this story is that Saul and his son definitely are dead. I get that. But before we deal with the justice on how we got there, we need to weep. David and his men, those with him, they tear their clothes, they fall to their knees, they begin to pray, they begin to fast, they grieve, they skip meals, you know, the servants are coming in, hey, it's time to eat, not eating. We're grieving. Do, do we get that, that when our leaders fall, these kind of truth is abandoned, that it's a time to grieve, it's a time to mourn, it's a time to weep. Somebody that should have been honored is not being honored, and the only appropriate response is hurt, and pain, and suffering. Some people could, and I think you could make a, uh, an argument for the, the focal point of Second Samuel 1 being suffering and grief and weeping. Because the whole last part of it's on that as well. And it's, it's what I wanted you to see. Verse 10 is like, like whoa, whoa, then David just interrupts everything for this. This becomes a major component of what needs to happen when people of God fall and hurt and are put to death. There's times I need to stop and ask God for tears. 
Sometimes we hear the news and we just go on. And I literally have to ask, say, God, my heart's not in this. My heart needs to be broken in this. I need to weep here. I need to stop. I need to interrupt what I'm doing and grieve. Because your anointed one, your plan is being thwarted or it looks like it is. And this is grieving. People are lying. David stops and he weeps and he grieves. They respond the way you should respond to the death of Saul. And it's impressive. Uh, They care more for the cause of God, the cause of the church, the cause of this national theocracy under God. Then they care for themselves and they, they weep and they grieve and they fast and they pray. So I just encourage you to lock this away sometimes and think about where, when is it appropriate to grieve and if you're not grieving and in those appropriate times to, to stop and ask God for tears. Some of us grow up in an environment where we've never cried and we don't know this emotion. Others of you have, have lost very dear and precious people to you and you, you can't stop crying. And there's, there's answers for that as well, but we, we, we do need to see it's appropriate at times to weep and to suffer. And we suffer because God says other people that are with us suffer. They could be our family, but in this case it was, though David was adopted into this family somewhat, this was his leader, this was his king. It's also interesting that for the last part of David's life, Saul was his enemy. So the king died, and David's first response is to grieve. As I showed you last week, he doesn't have his moving truck in the driveway and his bags packed ready to take the throne. First thing he wants to do is appropriately weep and grieve and mourn for for his nation, for his people, it reminded me of 1 Corinthians 12. Let me share that with you, some passages there. 1 Corinthians 12, 21 through 26. This is a passage on the body of Christ. It says, and it's, it's, it's referring to all of us in this room as different parts of the human anatomy. Verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 12 says, And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the feet to the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which are deemed less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and on less presentable members become more much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacks, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Wow. God says, you see somebody fall that I put in your body and your family? We had this church family, and in Israel we had the church family combined with a national family, and your family has fallen, even if it's one of the more unseemly what you would consider less significant members, yet they have fallen and they're connected to you and tied to you, you need to learn to stop and suffer. That if 
one suffers, we all suffer. We need to learn to mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep. And David got that. Saul and his son Jonathan and the other sons and his men had perished. And David understood that enough to stop and to weep and to uh, just plead with God not to let this go on, not to let it completely destroy us. You know, we're in, a, we're in an isolationist culture. saw a survey this week that you kids, those below 20, have smartphones. And the survey said that those who have smartphones have now become more isolationist than the generation before them. That it's just them and that phone. And they really don't have connections with others. And so your world is you and what you, you see or have there on that phone. Do you see this connection? You read a story that so-and-so died and fallen. Well, flip to another one. Or do you say, wait, wait, we interrupt this program. That person is connected to me. They're part of my family. They're part of the family of God. They're part of the church, or they're part of my nation. And if they suffer, I suffer. If they go down, I go down. I need tears, God, for these people who are suffering and hurting. We have, we have abuse. We have childhood abuse, sexual abuse, women's abuse, prisoner abuse, husband abuse. I mean, it just goes on and on, and we just, we just flip. And it doesn't seem to be the tears in this family that we ought to have. We don't know how to have times of deep grief and mourning and weeping unless it's one of our immediate family members and we just are suffering loss. David wasn't suffering loss. He was suffering because someone God had honored and put in place was connected to him and he needed to weep. Well, let's move on. Think about our application. Uh, verses 13 through 16 is where he says, okay, um, David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? Let me, let me pick up the story there. I forgot, hadn't read this part. Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien and Amalekite. Then David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? It's a great question. David asked him, asked him said, you know, you said you killed Saul. Who are you again? Well, I'm an Amalekite. Well, that's obviously close enough that David assumes, well, you know the, the, the lay of the land. You know the rules. So since you were an Amalekite, how is it that you weren't a little bit fearful of killing the king? It's like, well, he commanded me to. No, 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 that's not what I asked. How is it you weren't afraid of killing somebody who was God's anointed? And the Amalekite offers no defense. It's like, wait, you expect an answer? None, none comes. And it's like, you know, he's stunned at this moment, realizing, uh-oh, you know, messed up. Justice is fixing to reign. And he has no defense to this question. How is it that you weren't afraid? I mean, are you crazy? No even insanity plea 
another element that we seem to miss. Uh, break it down more practical, practically for you. If, if you had somebody pestering you, and this pest was, let's say, nine years old, I mean, they're down here, okay, and you're up here. And they're always making noise, they're always bugging, spilling things, doing stuff. I mean, and you're trying to work, do something. What do you say to the nine-year-old? Get out of here, you know. Slap him out, however you want to do it. Wait, wait, wait. Let's suppose you go to do that and you notice immediately behind him his 19-year-old, 300-pound brother carrying a baseball bat. Do you now slap the nine-year-old? Mm-mm. You don't even think about it. Why? Because you know he's connected to this, this giant of a guy who will take you out if you take him out. You recognize a connection between the nine and the 19-year-old. You must respect at all costs. How is it that we have forgotten the connection between us little people here on earth and our God and Creator in heaven. And that's what David is reminding this Amalekite of. He says, what you did, if you indeed did it, is you knocked out the Lord's anointed. No fear there? Why were you not afraid to do this? Saul's not just a man. Saul is the Lord's anointed. How did he become king? God put him in that place. How am I becoming king? God's putting me in this place. That's why even God tells us, pray for our kings, pray for our leaders, because God says, I'm the one who raises up and takes down kings. They're my anointed people to accomplish my purposes. How much did you miss that connection? I've often thought the problem with the whole abortion debate, you know, we keep talking, is, is, is the child in the womb, is it really a child? Is it a viable person? You know, and the other side wants to argue, it's my body. Does a woman have a right to do with her body what she wants to do? So it's not your body. So yes, it is. It's a body in you. Well, yeah, but it's in my body. And we start arguing all that. And we, we miss the argument's not, is it viable? The argument is not, is it a person? The argument is not, is it yours? The argument, who's, who, who's it connected to? It's connected to God. He formed this substance, whatever you want to call it, in the womb. He is the creator. Do you not have any fear in destroying what God is creating? Do you not see the connection with that? That you're trying to thwart the plans of God. The Apostle Paul was told this very thing, which was part of his dramatic uh, conversion story. You remember in Acts 9, he was called Saul then, so don't confuse the Sauls. But Jesus comes to Saul on the Damascus road, and he says to Saul, blinding eclipse light, like you're going to get a few days, you know, right on Saul, and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And Saul's response, uh, sir, you know, he's kind of squinting, looking up, becoming blind in the process. Do I know you? Who are you? I, I don't know you. And the response from heaven, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. Now, what was Saul doing? He was persecuting Christians. And connected to every Christian is Christ. You push against my church, you push against me. Do you not have any fear? I should come and wipe you out, but instead I'm going to save you and I'm going to show the world how much you will suffer as an ambassador for me. But this strong story of connectionalism. And that's the connection we need today to understand that everyone made in the image of God, you start abusing people made in the image of God. Think about who is behind them. It's God. It's, these are God's anointed creatures. Out of all of creation, He has stamped His image on us. That we matter to Him. And His church matters most. And so if you persecute this church of Christ and we have such persecution today because we've missed the connection we have this abortion because we've missed the connection we have female abuse because we missed this connection God says females are my life-giving tool to society nobody is here without a mother that is so valuable. God even gives laws. Men, if you must fight, you must take it outside. You don't dare do it near a woman. You don't dare harm her. She is my vessel of life. You must fight to protect her, which should say something about women in the military. But we miss this connection that God has this design for women. He has this design for men, and he says, don't tweak it. Don't mess with it because I am connected to it. And David gets it. He says, how is it that people could be unafraid to do something to God's plan or God's people? Wow, wait, what a way to start a 40-year reign as king. A king committed to truth, absolute truth. A king committed no lying. A king committed to this connectionalism with God and one another. And how this can create a revival even in our land, in our church, when we begin to see the, the values that are being given to us here in this time of transition between Saul and uh, David. Well, last part of this, this passage Verse 17 to the end. It's a lament. Verse 17. Then David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he told them to teach the sons of Judah. Now hold the phone there. We, we, we had grief, you know, back in uh, verse 11. He just stopped and he weeped, started weeping and fasting. Now that all that's passed, now that justice has been done, he's killed the Amalekite, he returns to Lament. Let's, let's write this down. Those of you who write or journal or create 
songs and music. That's the kind of person David was. He was a writer. He was a, one that liked to journal. He wrote songs. Uh, he said, let's stop and let's structure this. Let, let's reflect upon what's happened here. And let's put it down in some form where we can communicate it to others because everybody's not in the room. And he begins to structure this. And the first thing he says in verse 18 is teach it to the sons of Judah. The people of God need to know this. And says, behold, you know, as a, by the way, it, it, it's not in the Bible, but it got recorded in the book of Jashar. Hey, that's a great male name. Hey, some of y'all who need another male name, there it is. I come up with these in the Bible. I've never heard of anybody called Jashar, but in Jashar's book is this song called the Song of the Bow. And it begins to teach the sons of Judah. Your beauty, O Israel, is slain. Notice how he describes Saul and Jonathan, the people of God. They're beautiful. Remember we have this song about how beautiful is the bride of Christ? David gets this, this concept of the anointing of God is, is a thing of beauty. How have the mighty fallen, and they're mighty. Verse 20, catch this. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice, the daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. Catch that. There's times when you don't post it. There's times when you don't put it online. Do you understand that? David says, this, this lament is for the people of God. Don't tell it to the Philistines. Don't tell it to some ungodly person who's going to make fun, of, fun with it. Because that aggravates our grief. It aggravates our pain. There are lots of people who aggravate their pain by putting good stuff in wrong places. And David makes specific declaration here. I want my people to learn how to suffer and weep at the fallenness of righteous people anointed by God but I don't want you to be telling this to the whole world. There's truth only Christians need to hear. And Christians need to protect. We need to think about our reputation. We need to think about how much our hearts can endure. He says, let's, let's focus this. So he goes and he, he tells this story. Uh, verse 22, how the blood of the slain uh, has fallen. The, the bow of Jonathan, how he was mighty. He didn't turn back. And the sword of Saul did not return empty. How he's slain thousands. So he, he goes through this. He probably shares this song with his military as he grows. Yeah. Verse 24, O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. So learn, learn our place. Verse 26, let me say a word about it. He says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. How have the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? You need to understand and forget the idea that any homosexuality is in verse 26. It's absolutely not there. There are people who want to put it there. When it says, David says, the love of Jonathan was more valuable to me than the love of women. He's not talking sexually. He's talking militarily. He's talking about the, the, the value Saul was, the value Jonathan was, and Jonathan had a personal value to him. And that value was more important than even the value he sees in women. 
he's comparing a wife giving honor to her husband to Jonathan's ability to give honor to David. And by natural design, a wife is called to, to honor her husband. We know that. And to exalt him and to prefer him above herself. That's what it means to be a helpmate. She does that naturally and she does that well. And of course, it's the husband's responsibility to love his wife and to honor her. That dynamic happens. It is not necessarily by design that a military warrior and leader next in the throne next in line to the throne, would honor someone under him, like David. And that's what David is talking about. He says, Jonathan did the unnatural. He went above and beyond. He preferred me above himself. God said, I want to anoint David. And Jonathan said, okay, I was going to be king, but I'll step back. I'll step down. And I'll prefer you. And I will exalt you. And I, I will fight for you. And David is saying here, and where do you see that? Where do you see someone with that kind of love and respect and honor for something God's doing with his nation and his church? David says it's a wonderful thing. There's nothing like it to see someone prefer you. Someone, I mean, take it out of the marriage context for a minute. Philippians 2 um, Three and four, which says, "Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he, you know, he existed in the form of God, didn't reach out to grasp the equality of God. He preferred you over him." He says, "You know, we need to have this attitude to consider others as more important than ourselves, to exalt them and to lift them up." And that's what we are seeing in Jonathan. And that's what we see in Christ. And that's what we need to see in each and every one of us. And when you see that in someone and that person falls, you lament, you grieve, because you've seen one of the most precious go down. One of the ones that makes the world really go around. Those who sacrifice themselves for others day in and day out. And that's what David saw in Jonathan. Well, let me stop. Let's pray. Father, again, there's, there's so much application in this passage for us as a church, for us as an individual, for us as a nation. Oh, Lord, help us to get back to brokenness because our God will not despise a broken and contrite heart. Help us to learn how to grieve when the anointed of the Lord has fallen or is abused or is pushed upon. Father, help us to structure appropriate laments. Help us to see that we're different from the world and there's things that break our heart that never break theirs, that they just make sport of. Let us restore the differences. Father, Bring us back to truth. Bring us back to, to seeking your story, not just our version. Father, bring us to the place of seeing this connection with our God and our Creator so that we see our only hope is Christ, that He's the only mediator between God and man. 
and desires that we be saved. Father, may we run to him because we're weary and broken and we need a healer. We need a savior. We need his righteousness. To draw us to him, we pray. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we think about um, persecution we face in this world, the pain, the grief, the lament, straight out of the Romans class, let me read a passage from Romans 8. Because what I'm thinking about is when I'm under great persecution, can I find anywhere a love that won't leave? And here's the answer. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness, peril, sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The connection between us and God is so strong. Push all you want. You'll never break that connection. Those of us in Christ, we have Christ always. He will never leave. So we take the Lord's Supper this morning. It's just a reminder. I always think, and you've heard me say this, when you take the bread in and when you drink the wine... Can anybody reach in and grab that back out? It just it immediately unites to us and us to it. And the connection is so strong. You, nobody can break it. It becomes part of our molecules. It becomes part of us immediately. And, and I want you to see the strength of that. That in Christ, we're in Christ forever. No one can separate it. Nobody can take it away. It's ours. Now, I'm not saying by eating and drinking, you unite yourself to Christ. Christ has to unite himself to you by his grace. But once in Christ, there's, this is a, the symbolism of how tight the union is. If you want that tight of union with Christ, you must turn from sin and come to Christ. But it's a wonderful connection. Take and eat. This is my body. It's for you to be part of your body. This is my blood. We have a God who wants that. He wants us to be united to him. And take this morning just rejoicing in that connection, his protection, his love, his grace for us always. If you've not come to Christ, this is a time where you just let the, the elements pass by and you, you say, God, do I really need this? These folks think we do. And, and ask, ask, ask God, is this something for you? Uh, but we don't want you to play with God ever. And we want to take this in seriousness, rejoicing that we have a God who forgives sinners like us and unites himself to us. So I'm going to ask the elders and deacons to come forward and we'll distribute these elements to you.